Let's lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus through the word that he gave us. Matthew chapter 11 today. Matthew 11. And with the first verse of this chapter, we come to the end of the second major section of Matthew's gospel. After an an introductory section in the book, chapters 1 to 5, or chapters 1 to 3, excuse me, Matthew... um, organizes the, the, the events of Christ's life and his teaching in sort of five big sections. And here we have come to the end of it, uh, the end of the second one. Each of these five sections, uh, he recounts Jesus' ministry, and he ends each of the sections with sort of an extended um, account of Jesus' teaching. And then at the end of each of those accounts is a statement almost like this, invariably throughout the book, chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing His 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So, here we have come now to the end of this second section and the beginning now of a third section with verse number 2. And I wanted to just kind of put together um, where we've, what we've seen so far. Um, because sometimes, you know, you get down in the, the weeds of the book, which is a great thing to do. We want to be down in the details of the text. But sometimes we get so involved in the, in the trees, we lose the forest. So we're going to back up and just look at the forest. Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's showing us that Jesus Christ is God's King, the coming promised king that God would send over the kingdom of blessing that he had promised all through the Old Testament. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the message in the book of Matthew. And in chapters 4 through 7, he emphasized the authority of the king, the authority of Jesus Christ. He is given authority over nature and nations, but Satan came to him and tempted him to exercise that authority out from under submission to his Father. And uh, he was tested in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, do these things for yourself. But he refused that. So he went from there up to the mountain and he gave the Sermon on the Mount in which he showed himself to be the authoritative interpreter of all of the law of God. So he is really highlighting Jesus' authority And then you get to the second section, which is chapters 8 to 10, and he's highlighting Jesus' mission, Christ's mission. In that um, performing of that mission, Jesus does many miracles, of course. He demonstrates his authority that way. And uh, there's so much to do that Jesus comes to the end of, of the ministry season and he says, oh, pray that God would send out more laborers because the harvest is so vast. And in the very next chapter, you see God answering that prayer by Christ's sending out His disciples to continue the mission, to continue that ministry in all of the towns and the cities of the Jews. And uh, He's told them that when they go out on this mission, that they should expect opposition because He Himself Uh, in his own mission would be opposed. So the first section is about Christ's authority, the second section about his mission, and the third section 
verses, uh, chapters, excuse me, 11 to 13 are about the responses to Jesus when he goes out on his mission, proclaiming his authority as the king over God's kingdom, the various kinds of responses that people had to his ministry. Um, in this chapter, we'll see John the Baptist come to him and ask him, are you the one, the one that we've been waiting for? The one who I said who would come after me but was before me. Are you the one or do we look for another one? You can see John responding to Jesus. And that just sets the stage and you have over and over again people responding in these chapters positively or negatively. People ask in chapter 12, can this be the Son of God? And some conclude that yes, He was. And of course, many conclude that He was not. And so when you finally come to the end of this section, he's going to tell some parables, some stories in chapter 13 that are going to illustrate the various kinds of responses that people have to the kingdom of God and to the coming king. These responses and the implications of this for the, uh, for the concept of the kingdom of God, and we'll talk about that as we go through this, um, so that's where we're going. That's where this section uh, is leading us. The ways that people respond to the kingdom. But the section begins with the response of somebody that we've already seen a couple of times in the book. And his name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to respond and ask about the ministry of Jesus. And we'll see unfolded here the relationship between the two between Jesus and John, and that's going to be a kind of a unifying theme. John the Baptist will be a unifying theme for the, for the whole text. So chapter 11, verses 2 through 19, it's a bit of a lengthy text, so, uh, so listen carefully, follow along, try to see the connections that are being made and how this is unfolding, all in relation to John and Jesus, all right? Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, him, them Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so John's disciples go off, and verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What, did you, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it, was, it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, even among those born of women there has arisen no, no one greater than John the Baptist, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, 
The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For, the, for all the prophets and the, the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So there are kind of three things that are happening in this text. The first is John's, John the Baptist's evaluation of Jesus, trying to come to grips with who he is. And we see that in the first few verses 2 to 6. And uh, the background for this is what John is, what Matthew has already unfolded. We've learned about John. Uh, some of you haven't been here. Some of you have forgotten uh, from all those weeks ago. So let me just sort of recapture what Matthew has already told us. Back in chapter 3, we learned that uh, John, John the Baptist's ministry was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember that Isaiah predicted not only the coming of the Messiah, but he also talked about someone whom he just called a voice. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way. John, Isaiah saw this forerunner as um, someone who would go and run ahead of the king and call out that the king is coming. You can picture that in your mind, right? And A king making his royal procession into a place after his um, after his victorious battle or something, and he's coming back home, and ahead of him there's a runner coming on foot, and you look out and you see the watchmen on the walls are waiting, and they look out and they see the runner coming, and the runner is, is, is running because they've won, and he says, prepare the way, the king is coming, the king is coming, get everything ready. And people begin to clear the streets, and they dress up in their finery, and they come out on the balconies, and they wait for the king to come along. So that's what this voice was in the wilderness, this one who prepared the way for the coming king of this great eternal kingdom of joy and peace that God had promised. John comes to prepare the way. And how does he prepare it? How are our hearts prepared to receive the kingdom of Christ? John's message was very simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was repentance. A change of heart about sin, about God, about the direction that my life has been going. A, a, a sorrow for where I have been going and a, and a whole turning about in my mind of my, of my soul away from my own way to the king, away from rebellion and to submission. John said, get ready for the king. He's about to come. And the way that you get ready is to humble yourself before him, to turn from your wicked ways 
and put your trust in Him. As the Scripture says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. John's message was characterized by humiliation and introspection and repentance and sorrow and mourning and longing and waiting for the King to come. His ministry was primarily one of confrontation. I mean, John the Baptist was a guy who didn't shirk from calling sin, sin. In fact, so much so, that by the time we read this, he's in prison because he stood up to the Roman leaders and called out their sin. And they didn't like it, and so he's in jail. He's a man who speaks truth. He calls out sin. He, he's the... He's the turn or burn preacher. I mean, that's his message. You repent because Christ's kingdom is at hand. And in his role as the herald of the Messiah, he stood and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He who's coming after me is preferred before me. But now... It's like he's taken a step back from that and he's wondering if he misunderstood because he sends this delegation to Jesus to ask him for confirmation. Are you, in fact, who I think you are? Are you really the one we're waiting for or are we waiting for someone else? I mean, his disciples are fasting and Jesus are feasting. He's in jail. The the coming of Messiah was supposed to be accompanied by fiery judgment of God's enemies and he's in jail at the hands of God's enemies. Jesus is out there having dinner parties with sinners. So I I think he's not expressing unbelief here at this point, but rather looking for confirmation and for clarity. So he sends this delegation, and of course, Jesus answers them. And Jesus' answer, you see it in the text here, it it pointed again to his own works and to his words. But more importantly, he pointed to his works and his words in such a way that gave them a theological framework for understanding who he was because he couched all of the pointers to his works in the terms of the prophecies of Isaiah. I mean, what Jesus was doing was literally a fulfillment of what the prophets said that Messiah's ministry would look like. He healed the sick. He caused the blind to see. He made the lame walk and caused the deaf to hear. We read it in Isaiah 35 this morning. He preached the good news to the poor and to the brokenhearted. His ministry, in other words, was a fulfillment, a clear fulfillment of what the prophets predicted, that he would heal the sick and raise the dead. And so he sends them back and says, this is who I am. I am the one whom all the prophets pointed to. So blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so they turn around and they begin to go back to John. And I'm, I'm, you can just imagine, we, don't to, we aren't told, but you can just imagine how John's own faith was strengthened and was encouraged by such a testimony of the words and the works of Christ and how He was a fulfillment of all that the Scripture had said. 
So John's disciples take this confirmation back to him, but as they're leaving, now we have the second sort of section here where John is not expressing his opinion about Christ, but Christ is expressing his opinion about John, John the Baptist. And that's verses 7 through 15. And Jesus challenges his hearers about their expectations about John's ministry. He says in verse 7, Notice it again. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Uh, You know, a wishy-washy preacher that just is blown this way and that way? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? People wearing finery are in king's palaces, not out in the wilderness. And of course, neither, neither John's manner nor his message were soft and smooth. They were abrupt and straightforward. Turn, or you will face the judgment of God. As the psalm says, kiss the son lest he be angry for his wrath is quickly kindled. That was John the Baptist's message. Or Jesus said, what did you go out to see, a prophet? And he says, yes, he was a prophet. But in fact, he says he was more than a prophet. And then he says, John the Baptist's ministry was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. Again, Brother Jim read it this morning. Malachi says that God will send his messenger to announce the Messiah. That same forerunner that Isaiah predicted as the voice, Malachi calls God's messenger. The messenger that will prepare the way for God, for God's kingdom, for the king who will come. John the Baptist, in other words, is the pinnacle of all of the prophetic, the Old Testament prophetic ministry. He is not just a prophet. He is much more than a prophet. He's the greatest of all prophets. In fact, because of his unique position in the history of redemption, he is not just the greatest prophet who ever lived. He's the greatest human who'd ever lived up to that point. Jesus said, I tell you truly, Of those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is is sort of the capstone of the entire ministry of the Old Testament prophets. They looked forward with eyes of faith to the coming of the Messiah. He, the final Old Testament prophet, sees, actually sees physically the Messiah come. He beholds him with his face. And because of that, Jesus says he's the greatest of all that have ever come. And yet, this is kind of a surprising statement, but Jesus turns around and He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than He. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than He. Jesus isn't talking about John's personal salvation, as if He's questioning whether Jesus, whether John ends up in God's kingdom. Rather, he's talking about John's role as a prophet in the mold of Elijah and all of the other Old Testament prophets. His role as the precursor to the king, as the one whose main ministry takes place in the lead up to the kingdom. In that context, he says, John's ministry, as great as it was, even though it was the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophetic ministry, yet He was less than the least 
in the kingdom of God. In other words, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's kingdom existed only in typical form, in promise form. All of the kingdom of Israel was a, was a, a sort of pointer to the greater kingdom yet to come. All of the promise, all of the kingdom passages are, are, uh, are, are looking forward by way of promise to the ministry of Christ. When Jesus comes, the kingdom comes in its fullness. That is to say that this passage teaches us that there is both a continuity and a discontinuity, a sameness and a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The, the period of the prophets, the period of promise, and the period where the king is on the stage. The new covenant is not just a new chapter in the ongoing story of the Bible or even just a progression. The New Testament stands to the Old Testament as fulfillment stands to promise. Promises are great, aren't they? But the fulfillment is always so much better. There is a real advancement, in other words, that Jesus is teaching. There's a real advancement with the coming of Christ. When Christ comes, among other things, there is the fullness of the Spirit outpoured. Right? John says that in Jesus' day, the Spirit had not yet been given. Now, of course, the Spirit was at work in the Old Testament, but not given to the extent in the, in the same way that He was in the New not given in all of the fullness of, of new covenant blessing. The fullness of the Spirit, John says, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been, what? Do you remember? Not yet been glorified. It is Jesus' glorification, His ascension and enthronement in, in the courts of heaven that unleashes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is unprecedented in all of salvation history prior. There is a real advancement with the coming of Christ in terms of the fullness of the Spirit, in terms of the purified nature of God's people. We read this morning, and He will come and He will purify the sons of Levi so that the New Testament community is much more a believing church than the mixed community of Old Testament Israel. There is not just a new chapter or a new administration. There is an advancement. There is the fulfillment of all that was given as a promise. There is an advancement in terms of the revealing of the mystery of the Old Testament. So much of Old Testament revelation was given in mystery form where God is revealing something, but only through types and shadows and veiled outlines. And when Christ comes, it's like the veil is lifted and you see clearly who He is and what He is all about. Jesus' apostles, especially post-resurrection, post-glorification, they saw with much greater clarity the things of God and God's plan that even... John the Baptist, the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. 
which reminds us of the priority and the importance of the New Testament in helping us understand our Old Testaments, to have the light, the full light of the New Testament to help elucidate what was given only in types and shadows in the Old. So John sa- Jesus says, rather, John is the greatest of all Old Testament prophets, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But even though John the Baptist's ministry belongs in one sense to those, those former days, what the Bible calls the former days, John's ministry also sort of bridges into the coming of Christ so that John the Baptist is sort of a hinge that swings between the old covenant era and the new. So this is where John stands. You see it in what Jesus goes on to say about his ministry. He says that the coming of the kingdom is bringing great opposition for those who are a part of it, who those who oppose God, from those who oppose God. Verse 12, here he says, take a look at verse 12 again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. In other words, there is great opposition to Christ's ministry, and especially, of course, to John, its forerunner. And just like Elijah in the Old Testament was persecuted, remember how he was driven out of Israel, uh, out into the wilderness, he had to go out there, he had to live off the land, he had to rough it for a while. Uh, he was driven out because of the opposition of, uh, of, of those within, the, within Israel. So John's ministry, like a latter-day prophet, would be characterized by rough clothing and ministry out in the Judean wilderness far away from the cities, and he would eat locusts and wild honey and be out there demanding that Israel repent in the line of the ministry of the prophets. In fact, Jesus said, he, John, is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy about the end-time Elijah, the one that we read in Malachi chapter 4 this morning. All the prophets, look at verse 13, here's Jesus going to say, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, John is not Literally, Elijah come back from heaven. He says as much in John chapter 1. But he does come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, we read in Luke chapter 1. In other words, he will go before the Lord in the same mold of Elijah the prophet. And that's exactly what we find. And Jesus said that. Here he is. Here he is again. The prophets are coming, preparing the way for the kingdom. So, let me kind of summarize then this whole section, this little middle section, in case you lost me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that John is the greatest of all Old Testament prophets who still looked forward to the coming of Christ's kingdom. At the same time, he is the forerunner, the announcing herald that runs ahead of the king when he does come. John is the end-time Elijah, persecuted and driven into the wilderness, but calling on Israel to prepare 
through repentance. Like Elijah, he stands there before Israel and he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. If God is God, then serve Him. He says, Be ready. The Messiah is coming. And that brings us then to the final paragraph in which he talks about the interrelatedness. Now, this is key here. The interrelatedness between the ministries of John and Jesus and the way that their ministries are received or not received. And this, I think, is really where the real application is for us today. So would you take a look at the text again in verses 16 and 17? Jesus said, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. So Jesus is looking out there and He sees all of these crowds of people and He says, you are like obstinate children. You've seen little children play and one kid says, hey, let's play such and such. And some of the other kids say, no, no, that's, yeah, that's not good. Let's not play that. And they turn around and say, all right, well, let's play this then. No, no, we don't like that either. And no matter what you do, you cannot engage with them. Jesus said, that's the way you, this generation of, of people has responded and is responding to the ministry that God has given you. God sent the greatest of all prophets to preach to you. And now God sends His only Son. And in every case, you will not be moved. You won't repent. And you won't rejoice at the coming of God's Son. That's the way this generation was behaving toward the ministries of John and Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus goes on, he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, he's fasting. And they said, he's a crazy man, he's demon-possessed. What's wrong with this guy? Lighten up a little bit. And then Jesus comes and he brings lavish forgiveness reconciliation with God to all those who will repent. He sits down with people that a lot of people thought could never turn. And here's Matthew held up as this paragon of sinners who's come to him, and Jesus sits down and has a feast with Matthew and with all of his friends. And they say, no, he, what, this is crazy. He's a fool and a, he's a drunkard and a glutton and he, he hangs about with sinners. We can't receive him. No, it's like no matter what God sends them, they will not be responsive. The ministries of, of John the Baptist and Jesus, I think, are kind of like two gospel polarities like a north and the south pole of the gospel. John's message is mourn. Christ's message is dance. John's message is sorrow. Christ's is believe. John's is repent. Christ's is rejoice. 
Now I want to talk about the relationship between these two. Because I think there's a danger in separating them. In other words, as if John preached only sorrow and mourning and repentance and woe is me for I am undone without any joy, he's the one who also said, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Or Jesus, on the other hand, we can't look at Jesus and say, well, his message was all love and come to me and don't worry about your sin. Because Matthew has already told us Jesus' initial, uh, the, the, the first characteristic of his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same very message that John was preaching. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all perish. So, one thing we can't do is sort of to separate these two messages and not let them stay together. They're both together in the ministry of John. They're both together in the ministry of Jesus. Even while one and the other in the sort of unfolding history of salvation have their unique emphases. Their repentance on the one hand and rejoicing in grace, on the other hand, are like two sides of the same coin. You can't, you can't separate them. Maybe you have a hard time looking at both at the same time, flipping this coin back and forth. But this is the way the gospel operates in the hearts of men. It brings them, on the one hand, to mourn over their sin. And it brings them, on the other hand, to dance for joy at the mercies of God to repentant sinners. These two things go together, and you cannot have one without the other. We sing a, a hymn, a song that says, uh, in one part of the line it says, With joyful grief I lift my praise abhorring all my sin, adoring only Him. That's the way it goes. It is joyful grief that is the fruit of the gospel in the life of someone who's converted. Joyful grief. John and Jesus, repentance and rejoicing. You cannot separate them I also want to talk about the way in which they're related to each other. Repentance and joy. Rejoicing flows from repentance. Rejoicing is the fruit of God's grace that meets us at the point of our repentance. God's repentance is the first work of grace in our heart, then it moves from repentance into joy if it's real gospel work. And, and the reason I say that, part of the reason I say that, even from this context here, is that John and his ministry was preparatory for the ministry of Christ. He was to prepare 
the way. How do you prepare the way for the one who's going to come and sit down and be willing to commune with sinners? You prepare the way by saying, repent of your sin. When Matthew repents of his sin, Christ receives him just as surely as he receives anyone. His sins are completely forgotten, but it's repentance that, that was the first part of the work of grace. There's another hymn that we sing, um, Amazing Grace, very well known. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? That's the first work of grace in a man's heart. He's fearful. Fearful of the coming under the judgment of a holy God. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears, what? Relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. And what happens is that when the gospel begins to work in you, when your heart begins to be opened up by the gospel, that repentance and that fear and that mourning and that sadness, in light of the crucified Christ and the grace that comes to us through Him, the forgiveness that comes to Him, that mourning and sadness turns into joy in the life of someone who's really saved. I think there is a danger of isolating the one from the other. In our, not just in our, in our theology, but in our experience. There is the danger of someone who has no repentance about sin. The Bible says, listen carefully to these words, Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, what's held out here is the possibility that someone comes to a knowledge of the gospel at one level, someone who acknowledges the people of God, maybe confesses even his faith, perhaps, and yet goes on living in sin because his heart has never been changed. And the Bible says if there's no repentance, there is nothing for even that person who's, who's tasted of the heavenly gift. There's not even anything for him to look forward to except the fiery judgment of God. We, we must never allow ourselves to be isolated, even as Christian people, from the sense of repentance about our sins. On the other hand, I think there is a danger of never coming to a place of rejoicing, of never coming through the valley of humiliation and up to Mount Calvary where the sacrifice is done, where it's finished, and rejoicing and glorying in that finished work. The gospel moves us not only to sorrow, but also to rejoice in Christ. Micah chapter 7 says, 
the, the, the prophet says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until the Lord pleads my cause and executes judgment for me and He will bring me out into the light. This is the way the gospel works. First, it brings you through darkness and then into light. And, 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 and in the actual experience of, of conversion, of salvation, of the gospel becoming real for you, it, 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 it may look a little different in each person, right? It, it, not every person's experience of those two dynamics and those two attitudes happens in some sort of exact, precise order or a certain duration or a certain intensity. Some people were saved later in life after they experienced a great manifestation of their sin. Some people are converted from a very young age and come to believe in the Lord Christ. And and their experiences are different from one another sometimes. But what the Bible is teaching us is that both repentance and rejoicing in Christ alone are necessary components of a gospel response, a saving response to the good news of Jesus. We mourn and we dance. We repent and we rejoice. And rejoicing flows out of a repentant spirit when God meets that repentance with a vision of the gift of His grace in Christ. There is a danger further, and I've carried this all week, this idea of preaching the sermon and knowing that there is always an inherent danger of you hearing the wrong emphasis. (laughs) And what I mean by that is this. There are some people I have spoken to who say, I know I'm saved. I have no doubts about that at all. And yet, can go on and live in clear, unrepentant sin, but say, but I'm rejoicing in Jesus. You people talk about sin all the time. You don't understand about grace. But all the time, that kind of rejoicing is no real rejoicing in Christ. Or how could you rejoice in Him who hates the very thing that you are committed to doing? And I fear lest somebody hears this message and deceives himself all the way to the gates of hell. The Bible is abundantly clear, I think, on this. We must turn from our wicked way. There is the necessity for that kind of person to just be shaken from their false assurance and have a good dose of the fear of God. So I'm concerned that some people will hear the need for joy, repentance, and forgiveness, and grace, and discount. I'm sorry, they will hear the blessing of forgiveness, 
the blessing of Christ's uh, grace and they will discount repentance. But I also want to say that I, I know that there are people in any Christian assembly who struggle on the other side of that too. Who, who come to church week after week and they hear the gospel and they say to them, I hope I'm saved. I think I'm safe. I'm not sure. And they're just plagued perpetually by doubts and by fears. And they say to themselves, I just don't know. I, I want to be saved, but I just don't know if my repentance is good enough. I don't know if it's deep enough. Oh, wretched man that I am. And I just want to say to you today, look up. Look outside of yourself. There is such a thing as being too inwardly focused, looking for the fruits of grace, and not being enough upwardly focused to look at Him who paid it all. I want to preach to you the same simple sermon that was preached when Spurgeon was savingly converted in his day. The old substitute preacher got up and he didn't know too much to say about the text that he took except, look, brethren, look to Christ. You can do it, right? If he said, do this hard thing, we might all despair. But what does he say? He just says, look. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And I just want to tell you to get to lift eyes off of yourself and look at Christ. Look at His goodness. Look at His righteousness. Look how perfect it is. All of that belongs to those who repent, but their righteousness will never be enough. Their repentance will never be deep enough. Their faith will never be strong enough. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the one whom you, upon whom you are looking. It's the strength of the one that you have faith in. That's what saves. And, and, you know, these two things have to be together. And I'm so concerned that, that someone who, hear, who comes and hears them both from this pulpit week after week after week is only going to hear the wrong thing. And I tell you the person I'm most concerned about is the person who is presumptuous about his relationship with God. But I tell you also a person I have hope for is the person who who still yet struggles um, with assurance of his salvation or her salvation, but says in her heart, if, if Christ doesn't save me, then there's no hope for me. I want to remind you of the words of John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, who struggled so much with an assurance of his place before God. And he was up and he was down and he was up and he was down and sometimes he thought he could never be saved. He had dashes upon his conscience 
pricks of guilt in his heart. And he said, one day I was walking through the field and it was like God just opened my eyes. And I, I almost, it's like I could see into the very courts of heaven and at the throne of God, I saw Jesus Christ. He lifted his eyes up off of himself onto Christ and he said, I realized there is my righteousness. There he is at God's right hand. My whole righteousness. Not my own, but his. Imputed to me as a gift of God's mercy. There is my righteousness. How could I lack any righteousness? His righteousness is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. It doesn't depend on how good I've behaved or how badly I've behaved. Or what my frame of mind is. His righteousness is always the same and His righteousness is sufficient for me. There is my righteousness. And I want to encourage you, you who are struggling, looking inside of you and saying to yourself, I don't know if my repentance is deep enough. I don't know if my faith is strong enough. And I just want to say to you, brethren, lift up your eyes. Put your hope in Him, not in yourself. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, please help this message to find good soil today and bear fruit unto salvation in the heart and the life of some person here today. We pray that you would send your spirit now who would cause the word to come to life. Lord, please look down and bring the ministry of repentance where it needs to be brought. And please bring the ministry of rejoicing where it needs to be brought. As only your spirit can do, I pray in Christ's name.